I am so excited about today. Um, we're going to have some fun. Um, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 26. It's going to be starting in verse 17. I'm going to go ahead and, and preface this by saying we're going to be jumping all over the Gospels, not just Matthew. I'm, reading, I'm going to be reading Matthew from the top so that we can kind of get an idea of the scene that's happening, and then we can talk about it. But I'm going to be going to all the Gospels. But the reason why is because some Gospels reference certain moments of this story and some other Gospels reference other parts of this story. And so we're going to have to cover all bases in order to get the whole story. But most of what um, we're going to be starting with up until the very end is going to be more teachy, and then we're going to get really applicable at the end. But it's important that you hang on with me for the first part because it's necessary to understand the ending of it. We good? Everybody awake? It helps me get less nervous when people like say, amen, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have some snap. Oh, Hannah and them's back there. Okay, well, y'all can snap for Hannah. Um, anyways, so Matthew 26, verses 17, uh, verses 17 through 30. Oh, sorry. Brother, Gideon. All right, probably shouldn't sell it on a live stream. May have some Gideons watching. All right. Verse 17, I'm reading from the NIV, so if you're using your phone, uh, I'm reading from the NIV. Here we go. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Before we go any further, let me just go ahead because some people can get distracted by that one phrase. We're not going to go into that, but this is not talking about God wishing that Judas was never born. Okay, It's not saying, woe to him. It's better that he's not born in God's eyes. It's that because of what Judas is doing, for him it's going to be better that he was not alive, not it's, it's more of what's gonna, what it's going to do to him. So I want to say that now so we don't get distracted. We good? Okay, we're not talking about weird stuff. All right. It would be better for him if he had not been born. I read that already. Uh, then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he, gave, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, we are going to be talking about the Passover, the last Passover specifically, this Last Supper. We're also going to be talking about the Garden of Gethsemane as well. I'm not actually going to read that because that would be basically reading an entire chapter. It'd be much easier to summarize it. But before we get there, we need to talk about the Passover and the feast. 
But before we even talk about the Last Supper, let's talk about why they're even celebrating Passover. What is Passover? In a nutshell, here's the story of Passover. from Exodus. You can, you can find this all throughout the book of Exodus. It starts with Israel being enslaved to Egypt. So technically it starts before that because Joseph, who was among these people, became the second in command of Egypt. There was a big famine and he welcomed all of Israel into the land of Egypt. Joseph dies, and the Pharaoh dies, and a new Pharaoh rises to power who says, yeah, they're not just going to live here for free. They're going to work for us and make us bricks. And so they get enslaved to Egypt for many, many years, hundreds of years, and then God chooses out of their people Moses to lead them out. Moses approaches Pharaoh and pleads with his people to which, or pleads with Pharaoh to let his people go, to which Pharaoh says, no, let my people go. Um, So then, after Pharaoh says no, God sends ten plagues. We're not going to go through the plagues specifically, but God sends ten plagues, and after each plague, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, surely now you're going to let these people go. And Pharaoh still says no. So then the last plague, the tenth plague, God sends the angel of death, is what the literal rendering of that is, the angel of death. Some call him the destroyer, which reminds me of the Thor movie, the destroyer. Um, Sends the angel of death... uh, And what he's going to do is he's going to kill the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. Um, But what God does is he instructs Moses to tell all the people to slaughter a lamb without defect and to smear its blood on the sides of the doorframe and the top of the doorframe. And what happens is the angel of death comes into town. It passes over the houses that have the blood, hence the name Passover. And um, then Israel survives. Pharaoh's like, okay, that's enough get out of here, and all of Israel leaves. As they're leaving, they get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind and says, go back after them. We're not going to let them go. And as they get there, God instructs Moses to bring his staff and wave it over the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts. They cross on dry ground. And as the Egyptian army pursues them, when Israel makes it across, Moses waves his staff over the Red Sea again. It crashes. All of Egypt that was pursuing them died. That is the story of the Passover. I know most of us probably know that story, but that is what we're going to be appealing to pretty much this entire discussion because all of this is about that story. This is the first story of salvation for Israel. If you go to Israel and say, you know, the Lord saved me, or or what what do you think of when you think of salvation? They're immediately going to think of Passover. They don't think about personal relationship with Jesus, which that's a huge part of it. They immediately go to I remember when the Lord saved us from the hand of the Egyptians. That's salvation to them. So this story of Passover is a story of salvation. And then from that day forward, the people of God celebrate the Passover in order to remember what God had done for them. So this is what Exodus 13, uh, you don't have to turn there, I'm reading five verses, uh, 5 through 10 says. This is the Lord instituting this celebration. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites... The land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days, nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand, and a reminder on your forehead that, that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. 
you must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. So that's what we're talking about here. The Lord instituted, and every year since this Passover, they would celebrate every year to remember what the Lord did for them in Egypt. And all throughout the Bible, you're going to hear the Passover referenced throughout the entire Old Testament, even in the New Testament. You hear Passover mentioned even here. And the key theme in the Passover celebration is to remember. Turn to your neighbor and say, remember. I want, I want that word to be so engraved that you never forget it. Remember, remember. Remember the night that you put blood on your door. Remember when the angel of death passed by. Remember when you left Egypt. Remember when you were camped on the shore of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army coming in the distance. Remember, remember, remember. It's all throughout your, and this is what we, we used to go, this goes all the way back to uh, God with Noah. When the flood happened, God remembered Noah. Now, we've talked about this many times here, so I feel like me saying this is, is kind of pointless, but I'm going to say it anyway, just for those who haven't heard it. Remembering is not recalling something you forgot. It's not, I forgot, oh my gosh, I remember now. It is keeping on the forefront of your mind. That's, what, that's the definition, that's my favorite. Uh, one definition I heard is intense focus in a way that would allow that memory to shape you as you think of it and reflect on it. Either way, it is an intense focus. You never forget it. Bring it to memory all the time so that you don't forget. You remember so you don't forget. You don't remember after you have forgotten. We good? All right, let's keep moving. If you go through the Gospels, you will see that all of Jesus' ministry, his teachings, and sacrifice was focused on the Exodus story. Many even refer to Jesus as the second Moses. More scholarly, not in the Bible, but more scholarly. If you look in the Gospels, you will see so many parallels to the story of Moses and Jesus. You have the transfiguration, which is a very similar to the story of Moses on Mount Sinai. You have Jesus talking of being born again. Israel was said to have passed through the birth canal when they came through the Red Sea. So being born again, being brought out of Egypt. His baptism, Josh did a whole message on this, but his baptism is an allusion to the Exodus story. His teaching, if you go through his teaching, it is near impossible to go through the teaching of Jesus and not see the story of the Exodus. It is near impossible, especially in the book of John. If you read John, you, you can't, if you know your story in Exodus, you cannot help but see G, uh, the Exodus all throughout Jesus' story. Uh, oh yeah, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, but today, we're going to focus specifically on the Passover. So instead of going through all of the way that Jesus references to Moses, we're going to just focus on the Passover. Uh, specifically the last Passover, or the Eucharist, or if, you know, if you're independent fundamentalist Baptist, you may call it Holy Communion. I had someone come to my door yesterday, and uh, the first, I opened the door, and they didn't even say hello. They're like, how do you know you're going to heaven when you die? And I was like, I mean, I, I know. And they're like, well, how do you know? What does it take to be saved? And I was like, believe in Jesus. And they're like, yeah, but do you, do you think you can lose your salvation? And I'm like, I mean, I don't think so, no. And they're like, well, you're right. And then they handed me a sheet. They were from three hours away, three hours away, and they came to invite me to their church three hours away. I, can't, I don't know what they were doing. But on the card, it was so funny. The card, it had four little boxes. The first box said, believe in Jesus or go to hell, literally, as a, verbatim. The next, the next box said the King James is the only viable English translation and that all others are part of the New World Order, what it said. And then the other one was repent or you're going to miss the rapture. And it had a picture of the blood moons on the, on the card. I'm going to, I'm going to take a picture and I'm going to send it to y'all after service. It was so funny. Anyways, anyways, let's bring this back in. Let's bring it back in. The last supper. 
This is what Ray Vanderlaan said about the last Passover. This Passover is on one hand, remembrance of what God did in Egypt, and on the other hand, Jesus inserting himself into the story, declaring that he is joining them in their exodus and invites them to be a part of his people and what they are doing in the world. This is perhaps a second exodus, except this one is for the whole world. I love that. Now, before we go into the details of this Last Supper, some have debated whether this Last Supper was even a Seder meal, which is what I'm going to be talking about pretty much this whole time. But I want to lay out why I believe it is. So a Seder meal is the first meal that you do at Passover. It's the one that you do the night that Passover starts, you have a Seder meal is what it's called. And so for one, it says it plainly in the text here, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations to eat the Passover? I figured that was pretty obvious, but apparently people debate it. So let me give you some other things. In Exodus, they have Passover meal to remember. Jesus shows all throughout the story an emphasis on remembering. Second evidence, Jesus says that the bread represents his body. The requirement for a Seder is that you have unleavened bread. What does leaven represent? Sin. So if Jesus is calling the bread his body, what does the bread have to be without? Leaven. So they're eating unleavened bread, and it says that they're eating unleavened bread, but if that part was out of it, Jesus cannot reference this bread unless it is sinless or without leaven. So logically, they're eating unleavened bread, which is what you do at the Seder. More than one cup is easily assumed in this meal, which happens at a Seder. Also, the wine is blessed at the beginning, which is done at a Seder. At the end of the meal, Jesus and his disciples sing a hymn, which is what you do at the end of a Seder. Last one. The Bible says that they reclined. In the original Exodus, the original night when the angel of death came through, they ate the meal standing up because they had to be ready to leave Egypt whenever the Lord said go. Since then, they do it laying down or reclining to recognize that they are now in the land of rest and their enemies no longer pursuing them. I love that. That's a whole message in itself. But that's evidence that we're looking at a Seder because it says they reclined. So either it's a strange coincidence or we have indeed a Seder meal. Now, let's talk about the seating arrangement. How many have seen the Leonardo painting of The Last Supper? I wish that that painting never became a thing because it is the most incorrect way of looking. For one, there's a stained glass window in the picture, which they didn't have stained glass window. I think it was a stained glass window, right? Or it was some kind of window. They didn't have windows in general like that. On top of that, they're seated. All of them are white, but they're seated, and they're like this, and then they're seating at a table straight up. It's like a nice table with nice table or chairs, and it's like, man, it, it's, that looks really nice, but that is not at all how it would have looked. So let me show you what it would have looked like so that we can get a picture here. This is a really crucial part of the message, by the way. Very crucial. This is known as a triclinium. Say triclinium. Say it again, triclinium. Don't you feel so smart saying a big word? Triclinium. Tri, a triclinium, this table is typically a few inches off the ground, about three to four inches. Can y'all see okay? No? Paint it in your mind. Triclinium. Um, so, this table is a few inches off the ground. The reason where it gets its name from, by the way, is tri, three sides, and clinio, which means to recline. So what you would do at this table is you would lay on your left side. So I'm not going to lay down, but you would lay on your left side to eat with your right hand. 
It's very important. They do not eat with their left hand because they use their left hand for other things. They, they do not eat with their left hand. They always eat with their right hand. So if you're looking at this arrangement, they would have been facing this way and then this way and then this way. So the way that this worked historically, exclude, let's talk, let's, we'll get away from the story of Jesus just for a moment just so I can tell you how this works. The host always sits at this seat, the second seat. To his right would be his most honored guest, typically a best friend or his wife, like the most honored person to the host sits right here. The next most honored seat goes here. And then as you progress through the table, it goes center, left, right, center, left, right, center, in this case, right, left. And then this seat is the servant seat. This is the person that would wash the feet of everybody that came in. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wash feet of the, per of the people that came in. So the question is, do we know in this Last Supper where people would have been seated? We know some. We don't know all, but we know some. Where would Jesus be assumed to be sitting? At the second seat, the host seat. Now, who was seated next to him? Well, we know that, spoiler, we know that John would have been right here because it says that John leaned back on Jesus' chest. If they're laying sideways, the only way that's possible is if the person in front of him leaned back on his chest. So that's where John would have been seated. Here, we know who was seated here because Jesus said, one of you will betray me. The one who dips with me will betray me. So the bowl, they would have shared a bowl between each three persons. And so we're going to get to this later on. But the next most honored seat is the one who would betray Jesus, Judas. And then the servant seat, we have a good idea. We don't know for certain, but we have a good idea who was seated here. We think this was Peter. The reason being, there's multiple reasons, but in the story, whenever Jesus says, one of you will betray me, it says that Peter is whispering to John to ask the rabbi who is going to betray him. The only way this would make sense, because Jesus would hear it if it's coming from this direction, the only way it would make sense is if it was somewhere over here. But then when we get to the story of foot washing, he goes, it says that he, when he gets to Peter, so a lot of scholars have assumed that this is where Peter would have been. You don't have to believe that if you don't want to, but just to give you an idea, let me, let me write this down. So we'll say, Jesus, we'll do a cross, and then John, and then Judas, and then Peter. Jesus is the cross. I don't, I don't, there's too many J's. Everybody's name starts with a J. So that's what the seating arrangement would have looked like. Now, this is really important because what does the story say happened when they got there? They started arguing about who is the greatest. So two possibilities with that, with the reason why they would have been arguing this. Either they got here and they were wondering who's going to sit next to the rabbi or who's going to sit closer to the rabbi. Or they got to their seats and they saw where people were seated and were like, how is that person seated where they are? How is, how is Judas sitting next to Jesus? And I'm sure Peter really felt that way. How is Judas next to Jesus when I'm one of the inner three? You know? So they're arguing over who's the greatest and this is why. It's not, they're not just arguing out of nowhere. They're arguing because of the seating arrangement. They want to sit close to the rabbi and be recognized as honorable. Okay? We good? So Jesus responds with a foot washing. So what it, what, it, what it says, this is in John 13 specifically. Your Bibles, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, are going to say something that I'm not a fan of, especially if you're in the NIV. This is where the NIV and I don't get along so much. Uh, it says that when, in the NIV, it says that Jesus took off his outer garment. 
In the literal Greek, it says that he laid down his robe. And you're going to see why that's important in a second. So Jesus lays down his robe, ties a towel of some sort around his waist, and he starts to wash feet. When he gets to Peter, Peter says, don't do it. This is my job, Jesus. I'm the one who's supposed to wash feet. Don't do it, Jesus. And, and Jesus says, essentially, if I don't do this, you're not part of me. And we, we read way too into that. We read that and like, oh, he's telling Peter if he doesn't do it, he's going to hell. It's not what it's about. So what, that, that is a way of Jesus saying, I'm, a rab, I'm the rabbi. I'm the one trying to teach this lesson here. Let me teach this. You can't be my student if you don't let me teach, is what Jesus is saying. So Peter responds and says, well, then wash my hands and my head too, which is the Jewish way of saying, I repent. I'm sorry. And then Jesus brilliantly says, one who bathes only needs to have their feet washed. You are clean, Peter. And so Jesus is telling Peter, you have nothing to repent of, essentially, which is awesome. Uh, so Jesus starts to wash feet. And at the end of it, it says that he takes up his robe. Your Bible may say he put his clothes back on. Again, not a fan of that. He, put, he puts his clothes back on. What is Jesus saying with this? So when he lays down his robe... This is the way I pictured it. I don't have a robe to lay down. When he lays, is there not, is there, anybody got like a jacket or something? No, it's, it's totally fine if not. Okay, that, that'll be awesome. All right, so Jesus, the way that, the way that I read the story in, in the Greek is he would bring it down off of where it was and he would lay it down. So all the disciples would have been like, what is he doing? Like, what is he trying to tell us? He's laying something down. Jesus goes over, washes feet, and then he picks it back up again and hangs it back up. So none of this is happening on accident. In John 10, Jesus says verbatim, using the same Greek, I, take, I lay down my life to take it up again. I lay down my life to take it up again. The, I mean, it is verbatim. If you, you can go and look this up yourself. In John 10, it uses the exact same language. He laid down his robe. I lay down my life to take it up again. What is Jesus saying? If you want to lay down your life and take it up again, you wash feet. And then Jesus says at the end of this, people who have, I'm sorry, I read the wrong part. Uh, da, 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 lost my place. Here we go. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. In other words, it doesn't matter where you sit, the way that you are honored is you wash feet. You lay down your life to take it up again. Jesus is saying in this message, it does not matter where you sit because if you want to be honored, you wash feet. We're going to get to that towards the end, but that is very, very important. If you want to lay down your life and take it up again, if you want to be honored, wash feet, serve others, put others above yourself, be willing to get down and dirty, be willing to risk your spot at the table to wash others' feet. Now, let's get to the meal itself. In Exodus 6, God makes four promises, which is what they celebrate at the Passover. So repeat after me as I say these. Say, I will bring you out. Oh, that was lame. I will bring you out. That's better. I will set you free. I will redeem you. I will take you. One more time. I will bring you out. I will set you free. I will redeem you, and I will take you. All right, let's talk about these. I will bring you out. God is telling them, I've heard your cry, 
and tomorrow you are not going to be beaten anymore. You will no longer be under the boot of Egypt. You will be brought out. I will set you free. You may get out as a slave, and you may have no idea what to do now, considering you've been a slave all these years. All you may know is how to be a slave. But I will take all of that away and show you how to be free. This is how Ray Vanderlaan describes this one. He says, imagine someone is addicted to drugs. Let's just use, I don't know, meth. Uh, the most extreme example I could think of. When someone, if someone just suddenly stops using meth, are they suddenly not addicted to meth? No. They're still addicted, they just stopped using. So what God is telling them here, essentially using this example, is I'll take your addiction too. So I'm going to bring you out, but I'm also going to take all of the slave, slaveness, the slave nature that you have, and taking all that too. I will redeem you. But God, we are stained with the sin of Egypt. But God says, I will save you and clean you, it uses a certain word here, with an outstretched arm. Egypt has been oppressing Israel with an outstretched arm. With the staff of Pharaoh is how he oppressed Egypt. And God says the very thing that your enemy used to oppress you, I'm going to use against them and bring you out. So huge. I will take you. They might be wondering, what if we go back? What if something happens and we find ourselves slaves again? And then God says, don't worry. I will take you to myself and I will protect you. Never again will you be slaves. I will take you. It's amazing. So they drink a cup in remembrance of those four promises. So it's possible that they would have drank four different cups. I'm under the belief that it was one cup and they refilled it four times. It is not at all important. It doesn't change the story at all. But for this, we're going to assume that they had one cup and refilled it four times. So what happened at this specific Seder meal? So all Seders always start off with the Shema, which is, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. They always start with the Shema. Then they start the story of the Exodus, one cup at a time. So they would take the first cup and bless it and drink it. This is called the cup of Kadush. Say Kadush. It reminds me of uh, Kung Fu Panda. It's Kadush. Uh, cup of Kadush. That word means sanctification. This is the cup of I will bring you out. And they would say a blessing that says, Blessed are you, Lord our, or, I'm sorry, Lord our God, King of everything, for giving us the fruit of the vine. We see this in Luke 22 when it says, After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. That's where we see the disciples doing this. Then they have a second cup. This is called the cup of Majid. Say Majid. Majid. Another way of saying it is the cup. This one's fun to say because you can add a little phlegm in it. The cup of Haggadah. Say Haggadah. <laughs> so, uh, I'm sorry. It's funny just listening to Will say it. Um, Majid means the preacher and Haggadah means proclamation. They both mean the same thing essentially. But this is the cup of I will set you free. This is where the host would proclaim what the Lord did for Israel in Egypt, likely referencing the plagues that were done in order to set the people free, which makes sense when you think of the second promise, I will set you free by any means necessary, is essentially what they're saying here. Then the meal itself begins. There are seven things, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, I'm going to get really rabbinic here, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, listen for all the hints here. Seven things must be eaten at a Passover celebration. I'm going to teach you guys some Hebrew right here too. 
First part is maror. Say maror. These are bitter herbs. We, we might call this horseradish. Horseradish. I said that so country. It's a reminder of what it was like to be in bondage. That's what it represents because it's bitter. Then there was the kazaret. Say kazaret. This was romaine lettuce that was usually eaten with the horseradish. So this one represents that. So if you look at lettuce, you know this just from looking at it. They can take a little piece off. It's soft on one side and like hard on the other side. You know how the closer you get to the end, it's like hard and bitter. So the way, what it represents is that their time in Egypt started off soft under Joseph. And as they, the longer they stayed, the more bitter it became until now it is too bitter for them to bear. So that's the Khazaret. Then there is the Karoset. Say Karoset. This was a sweet brown mixture of fruit and nuts representing the mortar and brick used by the Hebrews to build the structure. So they build bricks. It was a reminder that they build bricks in Egypt. Then there was the beitza. Say beitza. This was a <laughs> this was a hard-boiled egg symbolizing the korban kagaga. I love saying that word, or the festival sacrifice. Then there was the karpas. Say karpas. This was parsley. Sometimes it would be boiled potatoes, representing spring and new beginnings. Then there, there's two more. Then there was the zeroa. Say zeroa. This was the roasted lamb that symbolized the Passover sacrifice. They would call this the body. Then there was the matzo bread. Say matzo bread. This acted usually as silverware. They didn't have forks and knives like we have today. They used the bread as silverware. But it represented the bread that they took with them when they left Egypt. We're going to come back to the matzo bread in a moment. But let's go back to what's happening this night. So they start the night off with eating the bitter herbs. And this is when Jesus references the one who will betray him. So the disciples are like, Lord, who's going who's to betray you? And, and Jesus said, I'm going to read the John 13 verse because it goes more in detail. Jesus answered, It is the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it into the dish. Then, dipping a piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Think of the symbolism here. So his betrayer, Jesus, takes the bread and dips it into the bitter herbs, reminding them of their suffering under Egypt, and he feeds it to Judas. Perhaps he's talking about a bondage of different, a different kind, a different kind of suffering, that Judas has tasted the bitter herbs in a different way, not to remember where he was, but to remember where he is now. And I wonder if during this, the disciples were looking at Jesus and seeing even a deeper point, knowing that Judas is seated here. Could they have at that point been like, so Jesus knew he was going to betray him, yet sat him right next to him at one of the seats of honor. His so you might say, Jesus sat next to his best friend and his enemy. What does Jesus teach? Love your enemies. And Jesus is showing it because the rabbi's teaching does not, it's not fulfilled until the rabbi lives it out first. So when the rabbi teaches something, if you don't see the rabbi then live it out, then that's called abolishing the law. And that's why Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. The way that he fulfills the law is he teaches the law and then lives it out. So we see Jesus living out the very thing he said, love your enemies by sitting and honoring his enemy. That is huge. Should have gotten 17 amens there. I uh, lost my place again. 
All right, so, so while they were eating, Luke says that Jesus took the bread. So this is, this is why I gave out these cups. I want you guys to experience this with us. So if you want to get your little piece of bread out, I love it because matzo bread is actually round. So this is a beautiful picture of what they would have had, a matzo bread. Matzo, I love that word. He said, take this, this is my body. Eat this and remember me. So go ahead and, and eat it. And remember Jesus. This bread represents deliverance from bondage. This bread without yeast, this sinless, striped, and wounded bread is my body and my offering. Eat it and remember me. I don't want to ignore the fact, I didn't mention this when I was talking about the seven pieces, but the bread, so they would have had all six items on one plate, and the bread would have been on a plate of its own. The seventh item on a plate of its own. So think about, you know, I'm not going to spoil it. This, the number seven, when you say the number seven, to an Israelite, that number always means Sabbath. It could mean completeness as well, but it's always completeness within Sabbath. It, it, everything centers around Sabbath. So if you look at the creation story, in the West, we say the crowning moment of God's creation was the creation of man, right? That was God's favorite, God's best part of his creation. To the Israelites... The crowning moment of God's creation was God resting because God is now dwelling within his creation. This cosmic temple, God has become one with his creation, is living among it. That is what made creation so amazing. Mankind is great. Don't want to miss that. But the crowning moment of God's creation is now God is living with that which he created. So they would have thought of Sabbath. So I believe that Jesus is teaching something even by call, because remember what I said, they called the lamb the body. Why didn't Jesus pick up the lamb and say, this is my body, eat it and remember me? He said, take the bread. And I'm not saying Jesus, I believe that Jesus is part of all seven parts of this. But Jesus said, take the bread, this is my body. And knowing that it was a plate of its own, I wonder, I'm, this is mere speculation, but I wonder if Jesus is saying, my body is your rest and it is broken for you. Eat it and be filled. Furthermore, Emily actually pointed this out to me, which I thought was super, super cool. Jesus took a piece of the matzah bread and divided it amongst the 12. So think about this, one piece of bread, hi Will, one piece of bread, and he divided it amongst the 12 people. What does the number 12 represent? The tribes of Israel. So one piece of bread divided amongst 12 people. I don't think anyone's gotten it yet. Twelve tribes coming from one body. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. I'll let you wrestle with that. Again, mere speculation, but I, I think there's something there. The third cup. So if you want to get your cup ready, this one's a fun word to say, so get ready to, to learn a word that you probably never want to say again. This is the cup <clears throat> of Berchat Hamazan. All right, we'll do one word at a time. We'll, just, we'll do it without the phlegm. Say burkat, hamazon. If you look at this in English, it's burkat hamazon. <laughs> it's spelled like Amazon, but with an H. This is the cup of thanksgiving, or the blessing, or redemption. The cup of I will redeem you. This is the cup that Jesus used to institute the Lord's Supper. We see this, Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks in participation in the blood of Christ. 
In Luke, it says it's after the supper, but technically it is after the supper because they're taking it after they've eaten the meal. But this is the blood, the promise of redemption. It is offered for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. Not, so I hate using the word new because we get the wrong idea. This is not the blood of the old promise is done and there's something new replacing it. This is the cup of the fulfilled promise. This is the cup of new beginnings with Jesus. Take this and remember him. So let's drink it together. Then afterward, there would be a fourth cup. This is the cup of Hallel. Say Hallel. Hallel. This is where we get the word Hallelujah, by the way. Because Hallel means praise or praise be. And Yah means God. So praise be to God. People are like, Hallelujah is a universal, a universal word. It's not. It's, it's clearly not. Because Hallel is a... Anyways. People are like, it's amazing because it's, it's, it's the same word everywhere. It is, but it's, it's a certain language. Anyways. Uh, this is called the cup of praise or the cup of restoration. Some may even call it the cup of protection. This is the cup of I will take you. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And this is done at the very, very end. During this, they would recite, which is amazing because Isaiah referenced this, and I don't think he, he had no idea. They referenced those psalms that you mentioned, Psalm 113 through 118. I'm assuming it's the same one based on how you were quoting it, which are known as the great Hallel, which if you read it, declare praise for God's protection. That's where the cup of protection comes from. It's technically the cup of praise, but if you listen to the, uh, the psalm, go, I'm not going to read all of them because there, there's, there's five psalms. There's a, long, a lot of reading. Um, but you will realize that it's the cup of protection. Thank you, Lord, for protecting us, for bringing us out of Egypt, from saving us from our enemies. And this cup, Jesus refuses in the supper. He says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus says, I will not, I'll pass. This is a massive deal. This is the equivalent of, think about the Passover night. This is the equivalent of Jesus saying, I'm not going to put blood on my doorpost. I'm not going to take the cup of protection. So the disciples in this, they probably didn't realize, I would assume they didn't realize like, okay, this means that he's about to die. Because they don't, they don't have the gospels. They don't see it like we do. But Jesus is saying here, I can't take this cup if I'm going to do what I got to do. He refuses it. And I, I assume that the disciples would have been shocked. I imagine, like, Rabbi, like, this is, the, this is the most important thing. If anything, we need to be saved from our enemies to come back and kill us. Like, we need the protection. And Jesus says, I'll pass. We're going to come back to that. For typically in, in the Jewish tradition, after they say the, those praises and drink the fourth cup, the Passover feast is over. But in the original story, that was just the beginning because the angel of death walked, and they had to wait and see if God was going to come through. So in this story, I want us to imagine this as the Passover, because Jesus turned down the cup of protection. So that means that maybe, just maybe, Passover for Jesus has really just begun. But we're going to come back to that. Let's talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, I've got plenty of time. Beautiful. Let's talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. How many were taught that Gethsemane was a town or a city? 
Like when you, whenever you read it, it was like they went to Gethsemane and you assumed it was like some kind of city. I did. I, I guess maybe that was just me. Everybody apparently doesn't know. All right. Cool. Well, I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, so a Gethsemane was not a town because the, the Bible capitalizes it. So we assume that it's some kind of location. But anyways, uh, the reason we call it the Garden of Gethsemane is John calls it a cultivated plot or a garden. And then Matthew and Mark call it Gethsemane. So we just put them together. Garden of Gethsemane. Now, a Gethsemane, uh, I've got time to go through this. So a Gethsemane is, this, this is more just to teach you what, where, where they would have been staying when this happened. A Gethsemane has two parts. So it was, it was a hole in a mountain. They would go into the mountain. In the first area, I'm not a good drawer. I'm not going to draw it. In the first area, there was a basin that would have a rod and a giant stone attached to it. They would dump olives this is why they, some, some uh, parts say they went to the Mount of Olives. I think Matt, Luke says that. They went to the Mount of Olives because they were making olive oil. Anyways, they would put the olives into this basin and roll the stone around, typically by somebody who was large because it was a heavy rock. And it would crush these, these olives to a pulp, like pulp and everything just totally crushed. They would shave off the top part of that olive oil. We call it extra virgin oil. They call it the finest oil. That portion always went to God which that's a sermon in itself, but they gave the finest part of their oil to God. They would collect the rest of their oil within like these pillow-like baskets. So imagine a pillow, but like with the basket material. And they would collect it and they would bring it over to the second area. In the second area, they had a giant beam uh, and it would be attached to like these different types of pulleys at the bottom. I saw Ray Vanderlaan do a teaching on this. He goes through this really in depth. But there's a slot in the wall where they place these pillow-like baskets, and at the bottom there's a little hole. So they take this lever and they crush the baskets, releasing all the oil into this little circle in the bottom. They would then pour water into that circle because water and acid, because olive oil is very acidic when you first make it. It has lots of acid that you shouldn't and can't consume. So they pour water into it. Water and acid mix. Oil and water do not. So the oil would rise to the top, they would shave off the oil, and they would store it away. Now, the name of the Gethsemane comes from the second part. So you have what's called a got. Say got. That's the lever. That's the press. That word means press. Then you have shemin. Say shemin, which means oil. So you have got shmanim, which means oil press. Or in English, Gethsemane. So we call it Gethsemane. I think it would be better just to call it an oil press. We're just trying to make it more complicated. But they're at an oil press. So, and they're staying here. This is around uh, springtime. They, this wouldn't have been... So olive oil season is in the fall. They were there in the spring, which means that this uh, Gethsemane wasn't actually being used. So they were likely staying there. Maybe somebody really loved Jesus' teaching or was a friend of one of the disciples. But they stayed there, and the garden likely would have been outside of this oil press. That's what they're working with. So anyways, it has nothing to do with this message. I just wanted to kind of paint the picture of where they're at. Okay? So then, once they get back to this Gethsemane, Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to go to the garden with him. They, he, Jesus, and a lot of times we read this and not knowing this context, and we just assume that he's just wanting to bring them to pray. Uh, but they were doing something specific. This was known at, so the night after they would have the Passover feast, the Seder meal, they would do what's called Lyle Shemarim. Say Lyle Shemarim. Or in English, the night of watching. 
So that the original Passover, after they took this feast, they watched. The angel of death is walking through the city. Is God going to come through on his promises? They watch. They watch the door. And I imagine that they hear the angel of death walking through, maybe even hearing the mothers screaming in agony because their children, their firstborn sons are being killed. And they're sitting there like, is that going to be us? The night of watching. So once they got out of that, they always would, they would always, um, after the night of the Seder, would go out and watch themselves to remember that God watched over them that night. And it's watch as God watches. And obviously, like, they're not watching to see if something happens literally, um, but they go out to remember that God watched them. This would be the firstborn son of every house would do this. It would, they would usually stay up all night. Sometimes it would be half the night, depending on the tradition. Uh, most of the time it was all night because it was like, is the Lord going to come through on his promises? And when they wait, whenever the next morning comes around, they celebrate because it's God came through, God's, the, the angel of death passed over our house. So Jesus told Peter, James, and John to go out and watch with them. And something happens in Mark 14 it says that Jesus became deeply distressed and troubled. Why? We read over this, and this, this is what we talk about all the time, the, the lullaby effect. We don't ask questions because we just assume that we, we know the whole story. But why was Jesus, because if you look at the English, deeply distressed means sudden shocking awareness. But the word for troubled, we can't even translate to English. There is no word in English. The closest we can get is sheer terror. So why is Jesus so terrified? He's just out watching, watching to make sure. Oh, wait. So there is actually a fifth cup. Before I say the name of this cup, I'm going to go ahead and warn you. It's going to make some of you squirm. But I want to, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not what you think, and we're going to talk about it, so don't, don't let me lose you when I tell you the name of this cup. But this is the cup of God's wrath, the fifth cup. The cup that God poured out on Egypt for oppressing Israel. I want to pause for a moment so that we don't miss the symbolism of what we're about to say. There isn't a person on earth who hasn't been Egypt in this story. Can I make that clear? Like, we, we all the time want to associate ourselves with the Israelites. We're the ones being oppressed. But if you look at us as a country, we care so much more about ourselves than others. And that is what is causing oppression. We oppress others by putting ourselves above them. All of us have been the oppressors at some point. So I don't want us to listen to this and think, oh, this is just significant for, for those who are not us. This is including us. Even Israelites became the Egyptians at one point and had to be sent into Babylonian exile. They were the oppressors at one point. They became the story that they ran from. So this includes everyone. Now, back to the cup. When I say wrath, I do not mean hell. I'm saying that God will redeem and protect his kids. You know what? I, I'm going to put this wrath thing to rest once and for all with this. Listen. The prophets... The sages and the rabbis taught that wrath is always, 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 always a tool of redemption. Always. Who does God redeem? The oppressed. If you oppress others, or to use Passover language, if you become Egypt, 
God's wrath will be upon you. That's not saying that God is going to throw a temper tantrum, though. That's saying that God will redeem those who you are oppressing. It's always a tool of redemption. When the Jewish people speak of the age to come, which is the time that they believe all evil will be gone and, and all that's left is God and, and the rest of the world, we call it the coming of, of heaven, heaven and earth colliding. They call it the age to come. They recognize that part of that is God destroying evil once and for all. The age to come cannot happen unless evil is taken care of. Sometimes that evil is on people. Sometimes that evil isn't even on people. But it's always an aim at evil, not an aim at people. Got it? God is... This, I wrote this down kind of like throwing a tantrum myself at the church, but I'm going to read it anyway. God is not a middle school boy who just got grounded and is throwing a temper tantrum. We see God in the West as some kind of deity waiting to unleash his fury on all the haters. But if you read Genesis 1 through 11, from the very beginning, you see the author telling you the exact opposite. Because the Mesopotamian and Egyptian gods longed to exercise selfish, relentless punishment on those they did not like and flood the earth when they got tired of humanity. Hint, hint. And separate themselves as much as possible by exercising this power. The God of Israel is different. He isn't like those gods. This God loves creation and longs to restore everything that is broken. The wrath of God is never for his pleasure, but for redemption. You see the difference? In the Mesopotamian and Egyptian gods, they exercise wrath out of pure hatred. And pure, they just, they disobeyed me, kill them. God is like, I see that creation is good, and there is evil that is bringing creation down. I have to go after that evil so creation can remain good. That's the difference. So that is the cup of wrath I'm talking about here. Now, the, ra the rabbis debated whether to even include this cup in the Passover at all. They went back and forth. Should we include it? Because they took the cup of protection, right? They took the cup of protection. They don't need it. So they came to the decision that when Elijah comes back, when the age to come comes, he will settle the argument for us. And that's why we call it the Elijah cup. If you ever look it up, it's called the Elijah cup. That's why. So Jesus, I imagine Jesus in the garden. He's watching. He's watching. And then he remembers. I didn't take the cup of protection. I didn't, I did not drink the, I did not put blood on my doorpost. What have I done? And I imagine he remembered that fifth cup because what does Jesus say? Father, let this cup pass from me. Believe that he was looking at that cup and saying, God, I know, I know that I'd pass on the cup of protection, but if there is any other way, any other way, please. I, I, I see Jesus' humanity all over this. We like to put Jesus as like this, this being who wasn't actually really human, but we say he was human. I see Jesus in this moment. It says that he experienced sheer terror. I, it says that he sweated drops of blood. That's how terrified he was. So I imagine him, he was sitting there shaking like we could not imagine. Is how, this is just how I picture it. And this is what Mark says. This is the language it uses. I want you to picture this. Jesus, the Son of God, listen to this. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Abba, in English, we would, we would use that word to, make, to mean 
not just dad or father, but like daddy or papa is how we would say it. So I imagine Jesus in that moment, this is what Mark says, that he's like, daddy, please. There's got to be some other way. There's got to be some other way. Yet, not my will, but yours. The most amazing act of obedience and trust in our entire Bibles. Because Jesus could have stopped it in this moment. He's God. He could have stopped it. He could have been like, God, I don't want to do this anymore. And God probably would have taken care of something. Maybe. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. Father, I trust you. If this is the only way, I'll do it. I imagine the father in that moment too. Again, this is all speculation, but this is just how I imagine the moment. If he's calling him daddy, I imagine the father looking back at Jesus saying, son, this is the only way. I'm not going to let that cup pass from it. You're going to have to drink it. So Jesus dies a gruesome death. And he finishes the last drop of the cup with three words. It is finished. It's one word in Greek, but just follow me in English. It is finished. What is he saying? Cup's empty. Look, look, there's nothing in the cup. Every last drop he consumed. The cup of God's fury on evil has run dry. This takes me back to the story of Noah. Remember the rainbow or the bow? How the bow, like, if, and we know how a rainbow is. A bow is faced upward. The language in the Hebrew doesn't call it a rainbow. It just calls it a bow, like a bow and arrow. And God says, I will not flood the earth again. I will not use this bow, this is how, the language, how they would have interpreted it. I will not use this tool of destruction against you ever again. So he hangs up his bow and faces it towards himself. If you break this covenant, it's coming for me. That's how much I long to restore creation. I remember the story of Abraham in Genesis 15, when God tells Abraham to create a blood path using different animals and cutting them in half. And it was a marriage covenant. If Abra- it was, there was two parts. There was the the, uh, the vassal is what they call it, the lesser party would pass through, and then the greater party would pass through, essentially saying, if you break my covenant, I will do this in your blood. And in the story, we know how it goes. A smoking pot and a torch pass through. God's saying, I will take both sides. If this covenant is broken, I will be the one responsible. It is my blood that will be danced in, not yours. So never again... Never again think that you have no worth. Because look, the cup has run dry. That was for you and me. That wasn't just for Israel. Listen, let me say this. Think about this. We're going to, speaking simply philosophically, if the wrath itself was consumed by Jesus, then what Jesus did wasn't just for those who said yes. But even for those who said no and became the anti-story, remember what Jesus said in Luke, the son came to seek and save that which was lost. His consumption of the wrath of God, 
here was the beginning of what we call the age to come. In the age to come, evil, like mentioned earlier, cannot survive long before getting swallowed up by the good. The good news is that God has taken the cup for all because he, uh, he conquered it all. So it isn't just for the, the, those who are on the inside who said yes. We are considered the insiders now as being followers of Jesus. It wasn't just for the insiders. It was for, because think about it. What was this cup going to be poured out on? Egypt. And Jesus drank the cup. Could he be saying here that I'm longing to save Egypt too? Instead of pouring this out on the enemy, why don't I drink what the enemy deserves so that the enemy can also become part of the family? That is the big, that is why Jesus, this is is why we celebrate what Jesus did. Because he conquered everything. Everything that needed to get taken care of was taken care of. Everything, everything. There's nothing left for God to do. Isaiah, if you want to go ahead and hop up there. Now, I want to talk about how we can practically apply the story. This is the most important part of the entire message. This is when I said at the beginning that listen to everything before to get to this point. This is the point. In Judaism, there are three things that must happen for the kingdom of God to come. This, this predates Jesus long before Jesus. Three things must happen for kingdom to come. Three things. One, the finger of God has to move. They would describe it as the pinky finger of God because God is so massively awesome that his pinky finger moving can change the world. The finger of God has to move. Step two, the people call him Lord. And then step three, the people respond in obedience. Now, let me, let me just say this. I'm not, this is not talking about salvation. I'm not saying these three things have to happen for you to be saved. I'm saying the first two conquered the salvation part, but kingdom comes when all three are included, when you respond in obedience. Listen to what Jesus said. This is the most, in my opinion, the most misquoted and misapplied passage in the entire Bible, in my opinion. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, not talking about heaven, but heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and tell them plainly, I never knew you. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I actually like the King James in this. Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus, he is not talking about, you're going to be before me in heaven and then you're going to say, Lord, Lord, like we, I follow you, Lord. And he's going to be like, no, you're going to hell. That's not what it's saying. It's saying when kingdom shows up, and you're wanting to be a part of it, and Jesus is trying to move in so many different ways, and you're trying to respond to kingdom moving, and all you have to bring is, Lord, I did all these great miracles, God. I did did all these things. I prophesied. I used your name. I said in the name of Jesus in my prayers. I I checked all the boxes. And Jesus is saying, I never knew you because you, you did the first two. The finger of God moved. You called me Lord but you are not responding in obedience. This goes all the way back to Mount Sinai or even the Exodus. We have the finger of God moving. He brings them out of Egypt. They call him Lord at Mount Sinai. What does God give them after they call him Lord? The law. For them to become a kingdom of priests, 
they then had to respond in obedience, not living some legalist. We, we, we tend to marry legalism and obedience. Legalism is I'm doing this for me. Obedience is I'm doing this just because it's the right thing to do. It's who I am. I do it because it's who I am. And it's because what God told me. It's, if you do it legalistically, it's I'm doing this so that God will find favor with me or that God will do something for me. So let's not get those confused, but obedience to God. So my main takeaway from this whole message is that we respond in obedience. The finger of God has moved through what we have talked about this entire time. My whole message so far was to show you the finger of God has moved. God's, we're not waiting for God to move and bring kingdom. We're not, there's nothing else for God to do. Look, it's empty. There's nothing left for Jesus to do. We are to respond in obedience. We've called him Lord. But now it's time we respond in obedience. And that is when kingdom is going to come. That is when kingdom is going to come. Now, you might be asking, how do we respond in obedience? So if you have your Bible, I'm going to end this in Philippians 2. In my conversation with Marty Solomon in our podcast, he mentioned this. I didn't even ask him, but he mentioned it. He said the most common question he gets, or one of the most common, is what does he think the church needs to hear more than anything else? And he says every time, Philippians 2. And I'm going to read this, and you're going to see why. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, steps one and two, if you any comfort from this from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of the of one mind. Do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to one's own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The most important part. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of what? A servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to point something out that we've read over so many times. We talk about the resurrection, and the resurrection is massive. It's so important that I don't want us to miss this. And I actually didn't know about this until Marty pointed it out. Every knee will bow because he died. Here's how Marty said it, and this makes people uncomfortable. It is what it is. Every knee will bow because he lost. Obviously, he won with the resurrection, but follow my train of thought. Every knee will bow because he lost. He was willing to become the loser, and that is what made him the winner. 
in a culture right now of America where all we know is win, be at the top, at the very, very top. We have to win. We have to win, 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 win. It's all about me. Josh did a whole message on this. It's all about me. And, and this is what Paul is saying. And Jesus, it is completely upside down. I should be the last one on that list. And Josh, I don't know if you remember this, but one of the very first messages Josh did, he said, in America, we are always chasing the top, but in the kingdom of heaven, they're always chasing the bottom. They are fighting to be at the bottom because those are the people that get exalted. Every knee will bow because Jesus was willing to lose. That is massive. And this is how we are to live our lives. Remember the foot washing? Let me erase the rainbow for a second. This goes all the way back to this lesson. I don't think Jesus was done teaching. This was the beginning of his teaching. But he laid down his robe. I laid down my life to take it up again. The way that you lay down your life is you wash feet. You humble yourself to the place of a servant. Consider others above yourself. And that is what makes you value. It doesn't matter where you sit at the table. It's not about where you are in this, this organization. Like, who cares where you sit? Jesus says, and Paul is saying here, if you want to be honored, stop trying to find a place at the table and start washing feet. Stop trying. Because listen, we're all at the table. Let's not, let's not, Jesus conquered everything so that we have a seat at the table. But it's not about who sits where. It's about who does with, who does uh, what do you do with what you have from this? Like, what do, you, what do you do in response to the fact that you are at the table is what I meant to say, sorry. How do you respond in obedience? You lay down your life considering others above yourself. I would argue that on this, in the way that this looked, I believe that Jesus was saying through his death, this is the lowest seat and this is the highest honored seat, the seat of the servant. Jesus made himself a servant by washing feet. But all we are trying to do in our culture is we're trying to work our way to the host table. And Jesus is saying, why are you coming over there? Why, why, why are you focused on this? You should be fighting to see who can wash feet. So that's the main takeaway. Finger of God has moved. Everything that needed to be accomplished has been accomplished. We call him Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's left? Respond in obedience. We have, we have to start doing things differently. And I believe it starts with a people like this. We have to start considering others' needs above our own. I am so guilty. This message is just as much for me as it is anybody else. I could be better at this. I consider myself, my own needs over the needs of others. Think about what Jesus said. Take up your cross daily and follow me. What does that mean? Be willing to plant that cross and die if need be. Not, not because you called him Lord, but because you are doing something so radically different than the culture around you. In Rome, in the Greek culture, all they knew about was me. It's all about me. Building me up, getting my place at the, at the table but the kingdom is totally upside down. That is what makes Jesus so different than anybody else that's ever existed, is that he came and said, if you wanna be at the top, if you wanna have the most honored seat, 
you wash feet. You lay down your life. The way that you take your life up again is you lay it down. So if we can all bow our heads for a moment. The first one, I don't, I don't know if it was anybody in here, but I'll, I'll do it anyway. If you're in here and you have not called him Lord, and what I mean by that is you haven't, you haven't began following Jesus, you haven't acknowledged him as the Lord of everything and began following him. If that's you, listen, whether you say yes or no, he's Lord. This is simply an acknowledgement of what is already true. If that's you, between, this is between me, you, and God. If you can just slip up your hand. Awesome. That's what I figured. For the rest of us, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this invitation. I know it's going to be all of us, but I want to do it so that we can openly acknowledge this. If you are in here and you say, Matt, I don't do this the way that I should. I could definitely improve in this area of putting others above myself. If that's you, could you raise your hand? Yeah. Every one of us. Every one of us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you conquered it all. That that fifth cup is run dry. Evil has been taken care of. Darkness has been taken care of. Death has been taken care of. All of that has been totally abolished because you became sin. You who knew no sin became sin so that we who did not know righteousness would become the righteousness of God. We remember you today, Lord. We take, we take this communion today to remember you, that you laid down your life and you took it up again, that your bread, your sinless body was broken for us, and that your blood was poured out for us, that your blood was the blood on our doorpost. We didn't even put blood on our doorpost, and yet your blood came and put blood on our doorpost anyway so that the angel of death would beeline to Jesus and pass all of our houses. And then Jesus, you conquered the very angel of death himself and have raised to life, which means that death and darkness and sin are all now a facade because they no longer exist. They have been removed from the picture and all that's left is life. All that's left is light. All that's left is freedom. So Lord, I ask today, knowing that the finger of God has moved and we have all called you Lord, I pray that you would show us ways today, even right now, that we can start to consider the needs of others over ourselves. I'm not even talking about financially, that we would be willing to sacrifice our time for others, our resources for others, our prayers for others, that everything we have to give we give to you first, and then we give to those who need it. And last, we put ourselves last. We humble ourselves to the place of servant because that right there is what brings you to the top, is getting to the bottom. So I pray, Lord, I pray that we be so passionate about it that it's almost as if we're all fighting for that place at the bottom. 
No, I, I, I serve people. No, 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 man. I, I, I have served more. Not so that we can boast in what we've done, but so that we can recognize that we are just, we are trying our best to not put ourselves above the needs of others, but put others above ourselves. That is our prayer today, Lord. Humble ourselves today. I pray, Lord, that you become the center again. Jesus, you be the center. Everything else revolves around you. We seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Sure, other things will be added unto us, but we don't, I want us to be so infatuated with you that we don't even care about that other part. That you are everything we need. If you add more stuff, then great, but all we really need is you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Help us, Lord. In times where we want to put ourselves above others, I pray that there be a conviction so strong that we can't even do the thing that we're about to do that uplifts ourselves over someone else. I pray that it break us apart, that in our quiet time, that you begin to point out areas of our life where we put ourselves above the needs of others, that we can't even breathe unless we consider others above ourselves. Let it be that suffocating to us. We do not want to be Rome. We do not want to be Egypt anymore. We want to be set free and we want to bring kingdom into this earth. And we know the way to do that is for one, you've already done what you've got to do. Now I pray, Holy Spirit, that you lead us and you guide us into all truth. And that kingdom would invade Colombia in a way that she never knew. Not just bring her back to originality, but better. Lord, we love you so much. I thank you, Lord, for this family. For a family that is willing to sacrifice so much time because we do service longer than others and these people are willing to come in and to learn and grow closer to you because they love you. And I thank you for this family. I would not be where I am had it not been for this family. So Lord, I am so thankful. And I pray that this word, Lord, go with us that it not return void. And we trust, Lord, that you're going to do some amazing things in us starting right now. This is not something we're waiting to start on Monday. We're doing it now. From this point into our last, into eternity, the needs of others above ourselves, taking on the form of a servant as Jesus did. Conform us into the image of Christ. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. We pray this all in the resurrected Son of Jesus' name. Amen. Man, that was so good. So good. Uh, this will be up on the podcast tomorrow, so if you want to go back and catch all the stuff, because um, it was a lot, and it was a lot of good stuff. So if you, if you need to, I would encourage you to go back. Um, I'm definitely going to do it. And... Um, just take it, take it deeper, and we'll we'll take a picture of this and post it in the uh, episode as well, so you can see it. But um, anyway, as you were sharing, I thought about like Judas, because that's a whole message in and of itself. You didn't get to um, being here, uh, and it reminded me of N.T. Wright, the story that I shared with you guys um, a while back when he was a bishop um, in the Anglican Church. One of the uh, pastors of one of the um, parishes they call them churches. Um, 
they were teaching on a, in a Sunday school class about it was at Easter, you know, and Jesus descending into hell for three days, which I've always thought was a really interesting lesson for, you know, kids. Um, but anyway, and so in this lesson, I guess the teacher asked, the Sunday school teacher asked, um, what do you think Jesus was doing in those three days when he between when he died? And, and of course, we don't, you know, um, we have some stuff in history. But this reminded me, Matt, when you were sharing, and the, the one of the kids in the class says, uh, maybe he was finding his friend Judas, which is every time I weep. But, but as you were sharing, Matt, about, you know, all, just the way that all this led to the cup of wrath and all that stuff, I just had this thought, and Matt, this, then this could be totally off. Matt mentioned Luke 15, and in the story specifically of the, of the quote-unquote prodigal son, um, and then the other son, there's two types of son in the story. But the first son, what does he do? He takes his father's wealth. He takes money from his father, and he runs away. And what does he do? He wastes it all, right, on reckless living. And when he's in the slums, as good as dead, he comes home, and the father restores everything, which is a really interesting connection to that story with N.T. Wright. But um, go go back. I, I just really encourage you this week to go back and re-listen to Matt's message and just um, do what I think, you know, is definitely a good steward of the word of the Lord, especially when it's released like this, is to go back and even take pieces that Matt didn't mention, kind of like it just, and just start to connect some things that it's, the, the way that I want to uh, leave you with is, you know, especially in the Jewish culture, Sundays um, or Saturdays for them, when they got together and uh, did the synagogue, it wasn't like you got together and you were taught something and then you go home and then that's it. And then the next week you come back and you're taught something. They saw the synagogue as the beginning of a conversation that carried itself out through the week. And so they would come in, they would have teaching, they would have conversation. And then on Monday or, you know, Sunday, on Sunday, the guy, guy or girl would go over to their neighbors and be like, you know, I just had this thought about what was said yesterday. What do you think about this? And it just continued. And it was just an ever evolving conversation. I want to encourage us to start to see, because that's at least how me and Matt, Isaiah, anybody else that preaches, that's, that's kind of what we see is like this and what Matt shared is, is the beginning of a conversation of a processing it's not the end you know what i'm saying and so like for example what does it mean that jesus took the i'm sorry i'm using your cup what does it mean that jesus emptied the cup of wrath like what does that mean what are the implications of that what does that mean for the people that you don't like what does it mean when jesus says to love your enemies when the law says to not what does it mean in leviticus 17 when god commands the people not to drink blood but then Jesus takes the cup and says, this is my blood. Drink it. Oops. You know what I'm saying? Like, what does that mean? Because blood also ratifies covenants. And in Leviticus 17, it says the blood is for atonement. Don't drink the blood because the blood is for atonement. This is my blood. Drink it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so just go, I mean, literally, you could go back and just let this start to permeate like yeast in a batch of dough. You know what I'm saying? Because um, it was so good. So I think that'd be a great way to honor all that Matt's uh, prepared and gave today. So thank you, Matt, for that.